what we are going to do is talk about um, spectral line widths today, the shape of the absorption lines or emission lines that material has. Um, we'll see that that's governed by a lot of different parameters, including predominantly due to the operating environment. And then what we'll do over the next couple weeks is talk about sort of experimental techniques that we use to observe line spectra and for the most part avoid a lot of the issues that we're going to introduce today that cause line spectra to be uh, less ideal than we would like. Okay, so some terminology first. Um, we have something like this, which we call an absorption spectrum. This could be an emission spectrum as well if we were uh, measuring light emitted from a material. Um, in this case, this is an absorption spectrum, um, plotted versus wave number. I introduced wave number as uh, one over a wavelength, where the wavelength is measured in centimeters. It's the number of wavelengths that fit in a centimeter. Okay, so this is some sort of spatial frequency. And you can see because the wave number is getting smaller, the wavelength is getting greater. So we could plot this against wavelength as well, although quite frequently um, these, this wave number uh, unit notation is used. So I will, for the most part, just call this vertical, this horizontal axis frequency. If it's a wave number, that's a spatial frequency. If we multiply that by C, we get a temporal frequency. Um, and all of these little absorption lines we know aren't truly lines. They're not truly delta functions. We know that because with the classical electron oscillator model, we saw that there was some line width. And we derived that line width. It was related to the damping of the material. And so if we zoom in on one of the lines, we can observe its structure a little more carefully. The line width is what we refer to as the full width half max. We refer to the full width half max as the line width. So it can have some width in whatever units we're measuring the spectrum in, so in terms of hertz, radians per second, wave number. Um, it's pretty common to refer to the line width in hertz, in temporal frequency, even if the spectrum is plotted in units of uh, wave numbers. So it's not uncommon to say there's a peak at 850 wave numbers with a 10 hertz line width. It's kind of mixed notation like that. So the region of high absorption inside that line width is called the line kernel. And then the region of absorption outside of that is called the wings. The kernel of the line and the wings of the line. This whole thing, this whole functional form here, we call the line profile. We'll see that there are different, uh, different functional forms that this can take. Does anybody remember one of them? Lorentzian. So a, a material that is, has a natural, what we call a natural line width. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not obscured by any sort of uh, environmental effects. Would have a Lorentzian line width. Showed that in one of the homeworks earlier on.
And so if we consider sort of this ideal case of a material that acts as a classical electron oscillator, we showed that we can uh, describe it as having some amplitude, so it being some charge that's oscillating around, emitting radiation or absorbing radiation, depending on uh, whether there's a field that's driving it, some amplitude to the displacement and some oscillation of that displacement. And then there was some term that represented damping. So this is a damped harmonic oscillator. And this parameter gamma that describes how much damping there is, we first introduced that as a uh, constant of proportionality between the damping force and the velocity. And it gives rise to this exponential decay. And the rate of decay is such that uh, 1 over gamma is a measure of the lifetime. Um, this is a displacement of the oscillator. Okay, the power it absorbs is going sca to scale as uh, displacement squared. When we square this, this 1 half in this argument, when we square it, it goes away. And then 1 over gamma is the time it takes the power to decay to 1 over E of its initial power, or for the um, amplitude to decay to 1 over, I guess, uh, well, I guess E to the minus 1 half. OK, so if gamma is 0, if there's no damping, then the displacement as a function of time is just cosinusoidal. If this charge oscillating around, uh, it never decays. It always is oscillating at the same frequency. And so we'd expect that its absorption profile would be, would only absorb or emit at that frequency. The presence of a finite value for gamma means that it doesn't oscillate forever. The uh, Fourier transform of this temporal function then has some spectral width. So there are various frequencies represented by this function besides just omega naught. Those additional frequencies are the make up the breadth of that absorption line. Okay, so if we write this temporal function as the sum of a bunch of different frequency components, each oscillating at that frequency, so this is the amplitude of a frequency component at omega, this is the oscillation at omega, and we add up all those different components, then we can find the value of the amplitude at any given frequency using Fourier's method, where we uh, write the original function times an oscillation at that frequency. And so if we take our original function, we multiply it by e to the minus i omega t. If this omega is the same as that omega, they cancel out, and I get uh, finite integral. Otherwise, there's some oscillation, and when I integrate over infinity, that oscillates away. Right, so that's Fourier's method. And this is the Fourier transform of this. Wait? Is, is gamma the same at any slightly energy level? Does it change frequency? It's different depending on the energy level. Okay, so this is the classical model. So the classical model doesn't have energy levels in it. 
Um, but gamma is a parameter that describes uh, the lifetime. So tau is the lifetime in, in units of time, or in dimension of time. And the lifetime of different energy levels will be different. So if you have a hydrogen atom, you've got the 1s, 2s, 2p, 3s, 3p, 3d. Each of those can have its own lifetime. And therefore, the value of gamma is going to be different for each one. OK, so spectral line widths are inversely related to lifetime. Tau is the lifetime. Gamma is, the, we, as we know, uh, the spectral line width. As a result, anything that decreases the lifetime of a state is going to increase the line width. Okay, so what we refer to as the lifetime of a state is usually the lifetime of what the state would be if the atom is alone in isolation. There's no environmental perturbations that are going to cause it to decay due to anything other than its own natural spontaneous decay. Okay, but there's plenty of things you can do to knock an atom out of its excited state. For instance, you can bump into it, give it a little kick, and knock it down. Um, so when you have other atoms around uh, your, the atom you're considering, the presence of those atoms will affect the lifetime. You can only decrease it. And by decreasing the lifetime, it increases the line width. Okay, so the natural line width is the line width that corresponds to the natural lifetime. But we have things like collisions with other atoms. And collisions of atoms, we, in the macroscopic sense, we call that pressure. So we'll have this, this effect called pressure broadening. So broadening means the line width is broadened. And we'll see interaction with strong fields. Another example of a mechanism that can broaden the line width. Um, we'll see. The, the reason for that is a strong field can not only pump energy up into an excited state, but it can cause the energy in the upper state to decay back down, or the population in the upper state to decay down, and cause stimulated emission, which decreases the lifetime. Um, so both of these types of effects would affect every atom in your ensemble of atoms, in your material, identically. Right? If you've got an atom in a helium neon laser and it's sitting there in the gas and there's a certain pressure around it, that's the same pressure that every other atom is going to feel. And so whatever affects the lifetime of one atom will affect the lifetime of all of them. And so we call this, these types of mechanisms homogeneous broadening. If you were able to measure the absorption profile of a single atom, it would be the same for essentially every atom in a, in a sample. OK, so that's in contrast to, what do you think? Yes. Inhomogeneous broadening is an effect which causes the observed line width of a collection of atoms to increase. but the mechanism responsible for it is that the position of different lines is getting shifted. So if we have a spectrum of the natural line width that looks like this, if we now consider um, 
a second atom that has, should have the same spectrum, but for some reason its center frequency has shifted a little bit. And then there's another that has its center frequency shifted a bit more, and then maybe one that is also at sort of an intermediate frequency. If we look at the total absorption by all these atoms in a collection, we're going to find that the total amount of absorption we see, or the observed absorption line width, is actually broader than that from than any single atom would produce. And that's called inhomogeneous broadening. Okay, so some examples of this are Doppler broadening. So in a gas, what happens is the atoms are moving because they have a finite temperature. If they're moving towards the laser beam, they see the frequency get upshifted, the Doppler effect. If they're moving away, they see the Doppler frequency you get downshifted. And as a result, their resonant frequency gets Doppler shifted as well. And so different atoms, depending on which direction they're moving and their, the magnitude of their velocity, will have their resonant frequency shifted from the, uh, the natural resonant frequency or the, the zero temperature resonant frequency. So Doppler broadening is, is perhaps the most uh, common form of inhomogeneous broadening. Um, there are others, such as transit time broadening, uh, which we will investigate a little bit. Basically, the idea is that um, if you're measuring absorption due to a material absorbing light, say, from a beam, if that material is moving through the beam, if the time in which it interacts with the beam is less than the natural lifetime, um, then it is unable to, uh, well, that decrease in interaction time causes an increase in the observed line width. Okay, and particularly when you have, um, have non-laminar flow of a material, you tend to get different atoms interacting with the beam for different lengths of time. Hence, you tend to get inhomogeneous broadening due to that effect. Okay, so a couple different types or reasons for uh, broadening of the natural line width. So let's just go through and uh, derive the form of the natural line width and use that as a starting point. So let's take our previous expression of a damped harmonic oscillator as the displacement of a charge as a function of time, and let's calculate the uh, frequency components that make up this function. Right, so we multiply that function of time by our sinusoidal oscillation. I'm choosing to use the exponential form of the Fourier transform. You could use sines or cosines. Uh, we'll see why I use the exponential in a second. It makes the integral much easier. If I write out the cosine omega naught t as an exponent as well, then I get something that's readily integratable. So I will write that cosine as um, e to the i omega naught t plus e to the minus i omega naught t divided by 2. Pull the 1 half out front. And then I have e to the i omega t. So I want to integrate that with respect to time. 
So let me pull out the constants and combine the arguments. I have two terms, one that looks like, um, well, let me write this as um, minus i times omega naught minus omega. And then plus, I guess, minus i. gamma over 2, all times t. And then I have a second term where only the sign of the omega naught has changed. And I will write that as plus i and change the sign of everything except the omega naught. OK, so I can do this integral. Right, because this is just an exponent. So e to the a times t, when I integrate that, is 1 over a. It's e to the at. So I have 1 over this. Likewise, over here, And integrated at infinity uh, for time, both of these terms are going to go to 0. Integrated at 0, they both go to 1. So I can just replace these with 1s. And because the 0 is there, I get a negative sign. Here, yeah. Okay, so that's what I, that's where that uh, expression in the notes comes from. And now, what we want to do is uh, consider what this function looks like. So it's, this is a function of omega. So this is a spectrum, and I want to look around a resonant, a resonant peak. I know those resonant peaks are going to be at omega, not. So I'll look at uh, values close to omega naught. And I'll change my uh, parameter from omega to delta omega. So delta omega will be the distance away from omega naught. So then when, if omega is near omega naught, this term over here will be small. If the denominator is small, that makes this term large. Over here, though, this term in the denominator is going to be large. It's going to be 
near 2 times omega naught. And so this term will be much smaller than this term. Okay, which is to say, I can consider only the term that has a frequency near omega naught and neglect the other term in uh, looking at this uh, spectral profile. So let me do that. Let me neglect this term. And I've got an expression here which I can uh, rationalize by multi multiplying the numerator and the denominator by the complex conjugate of i omega minus omega naught plus gamma over 2. Okay, so the real part of that is here, and that gives rise to the absorption. The imaginary part will relate to a phase shift. So this is a Lorentzian profile. It has constants in the numerator and one of the terms in the denominator and some variable squared in the other term in the denominator. That's the Lorentzian profile um, that comes entirely from knowing the damping. So knowing the damping, you know the line width. So this is normalized. Um, if we want to take into account the absolute value of the absorption, then we can just multiply this by uh, the peak absorption. I guess actually the way this is written, sorry, this isn't the peak absorption, this is the total absorption over all frequencies. Okay, if you send in white light of known intensity, um, then I naught here is the difference between how much you sent in and how much you got out. It's the total absorption is the integral under the absorption profile. Because okay. this is normalized so that when you integrate it, you get one. Uh, the peak intensity is related to that by this expression here. It comes from um, integrating the Lorentzian. Okay, so if that's the natural line width, uh, what happens when you muck it up by taking your perfectly perfect damped harmonic oscillator and putting it in uh, some environment where other stuff is going on? So let's first consider the Doppler shift. Um, we'll consider what happens for a single atom and then look at what happens for an ensemble of atoms and um, how many atoms you expect to have producing different Doppler shifts. We'll add that all up, and we'll get the total absorption profile for an ensemble of atoms. And it's important, I, I think I mentioned this occasionally, today when I'm saying atom, it could be atom, molecule, ion, any, any sort of uh, elementary particle in our, in our material. OK, so starting with an atom that has a natural frequency of omega naught, um, the Doppler shifted frequency is going to be omega naught plus k dot v, right, where v is its velocity, k is its uh, wave vector. And so there's a dot product. If the velocity is in the 
direction of the wave vector, that means co-propagating with the light, then the light gets downshifted. If you're moving in the same direction as an ambulance, you hear its siren downshifted in frequency. Therefore, the light needs to be at higher, a higher frequency than omega naught so that when it gets downshifted, it's at the appropriate frequency to cause uh, an absorption. So the center frequency for the absorption line is going to be at the natural frequency plus k dot v. If k dot v is 0, meaning the light, which is the direction of k, and the velocity of the atom are perpendicular, then you'd expect no Doppler shift. Right? So omega would be omega naught. And then if the light and the atom are counterpropagating, k dot v is negative, you need a lower frequency such that when it gets upshifted, you end up with omega naught, the frequency that excites the atom in its, sort of, in its own reference frame. Okay, so we have an expression for the resonant frequency omega of an atom moving with velocity v. And we know from thermodynamics, if the system's in thermodynamic equilibrium, that the um, relative population of an atom with a certain energy has to follow a Boltzmann distribution. So the in general terms, the population density of some state with energy E is proportional to the total energy and that proportionality constant is e to the minus the energy that the atom has divided by the thermal energy of the system, kT. Okay, so in our case, the atom is moving, so the energy We'll use classical kinetic energy, one-half mv squared. And in order to simplify the notation, um, I will write the thermal energy as the kinetic energy associated with an atom that has a particular velocity v sub p. And v sub p is the p stands for probable. This is the most probable velocity that I would expect an atom to have. Certainly, if all the atoms had a velocity of v sub p, then the total kinetic energy would be kT. And microscopically, kinetic energy is heat. kT is the thermal energy of the system. So that's just uh, relating macroscopic heat to microscopic motion. So if we do that, then we can write N of V as such. Okay, and we have that here. And if I differentiate that with respect to the velocity, 
Um, I can get the number density, well, before I do that, that's the number density. And I'm measuring, if I multiply both sides by dv, then I get total number of atoms that have a velocity between, say, vz and vz plus delta, dvz. So this gives me a total number of atoms now. And so I will take this expression for the Doppler shifted frequency. I will use that to relate uh, the frequency shift to a velocity of an atom. Rewrite this, uh, this range of velocities as a range of frequency shifts, then with this omega naught and c factors. And then I will uh, rewrite this velocity of the atom also as an equivalent Doppler frequency shift. And express this uh, Boltzmann distribution not in terms of the velocity of the atoms, but the uh, frequency shift of their resonant frequencies. I'm just changing variables. And the reason to do that is then once I have this expression for the number of atoms with a resonant frequency at omega, it's just a matter of uh, relating the total absorption to the total number of atoms. Since they're proportional, uh, the total intensity ends up being uh, proportional to that same, that same expression that I had uh, down here. And to take account of the constant of proportionality, I'll just normalize it to I naught, total, total absorption. Okay, so for example, this square root of pi is a normalization factor, so that when I integrate overall frequencies, I get the total absorption is I naught. Okay, so what's interesting here is that the shape of this, the functional form of omega, occurs inside this exponent. So it's e to the minus something squared. That's a Gaussian. So now my line profile is no longer a Lorentzian, but rather it's Gaussian. And that comes from the fact that the uh, number of atoms that have their frequency shifted to any particular frequency obeys a Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution, and that's a Gaussian, Gaussian distribution. Okay, so I can ask what's the full width half max of this. That will tell me the line width. All right, so I can set this equal to I naught over, or this expression over here is the peak value. I set omega to omega naught. This term goes to 1. I can set this whole thing equal to half of that. It's equivalent to setting the uh, exponent here, e to the minus this quantity squared, equal to 1 half. And solve for the omega, or the omega minus omega naught that makes that 
that amplitude go down to a factor of one half, and I get a line width uh, that's expressed here in terms of angular frequency, in terms of omega. And I've substituted back in for my VP an expression in terms of KT. So now here's an expression that given the absorbing frequency, the resonant frequency, the temperature of a material, and the mass of an individual atom, molecule, or ion in that material, you can find the Doppler limited line width. Um, what types of materials would you expect the line width to be Doppler limited in? So let me rephrase that. What phase of a material is in a gas? And gases are the ones that have the uh, largest amount of motion. And then uh, we see this inverse, I guess, inverse uh, root mass dependence. So heavier light molecules would have a larger Doppler limited line width. Light molecules, so helium, hydrogen, light molecules of low mass, the material is going to be moving around faster for a given amount of thermal energy. And so you'll get greater Doppler shifts, larger line width. So omega is angular frequency. Um, line width, if it's, you have to be a little careful. Um, if you refer to something in a line width in hertz, which is probably the most common way to refer to a line width, then you'd have to, if you calculated omega, d omega, you'd have to divide that by 2 pi. And I think at the end of the slides, I have a chart that has the line widths all expressed in terms of hertz. So in the derivation, I'm deriving in terms of omega because it's omega that I'm using in, in the uh, derivation, but just divide that by 2 pi and you get the line width in terms of hertz. Okay. So if you were to express a line width in terms of omega, uh, the preferred way to write the units would be radians per second as opposed to hertz, even though the dimensions are the same. Okay, uh, so example, calculate the natural line width of the sodium D1 line at 589 nanometers, which corresponds to uh, a particular transition that has a 16 nanosecond lifetime. So natural line width, we calculate from the lifetime. So the line width is 1 over the lifetime if you measure the line width in terms of omega. Okay, so d omega is 1 over tau. If you want to express that in terms of hertz, you need to divide that by 2 pi. That's a 2 pi. In calculating that for 16 nanoseconds, we get 10 megahertz.
So let's take the same transition and consider what happens in a sodium vapor cell. This would be something like the street lights, the yellow street lights uh, that have a high temperature, 500 Kelvin. Now the Doppler limited line width we had in, written as d omega, so we'll divide that by 2 pi. So the formula we had had an omega in it. I just replaced that omega with an f. Then I've essentially divided by 2 pi. Um, OK, so the wavelength is at 589 nanometers. And c over frequency is wavelength. So I'll write c over frequency is 1 over lambda. Temperature I'm given. And the mass I can find for sodium. Um, sodium is 23 atomic mass units. And one atomic mass unit is 10 to the minus 27 kilograms, roughly. So using those values, the line width works out to be 1.7 gigahertz. So in a hot sodium vapor, what would you expect the line width to be? If you were to measure the absorption profile, you expect 10 megahertz or 1.7 gigahertz? 1.7 gigahertz. What about at room temperature? I mean, this was, this was pretty hot. What if we cooled that sodium vapor down to room temperature? Would we expect then to see the natural line width? Still going to be quite large. Yeah, it only scales as the square root of temperature. We've only decreased the temperature, not even by a factor of two. So the line width hasn't even gone down by, yeah, by 0.7. Um, yeah, so we're still going to be gigahertz line width, even at room temperature. OK, so uh, what this example is meant to show, besides just working through numerical values, is that although Doppler limited line widths are, lim are scale with the temperature. Uh, it's not necessarily practical to just cool things in order to avoid Doppler broadening. You'd essentially have to cool to the point where it condenses into a solid or liquid. Okay, so it turns out there are other experimental techniques um, to observe the natural line width of a gas that would normally be Doppler broadened. Um, okay, so why would you want to do that? Let me just take a step back. Say we set up an experiment to measure an absorption profile. And what we see is this, some absorbed power the function of frequency, and this line width, okay, that's 1.7 gigahertz. But we can still find the center of that and say, okay, there's the absorption occurs at a particular frequency. It's 589.1 nanometers. Uh, why might you want to be able to resolve structure that's smaller than this line width? So we don't really know 
by looking at that spectrum, whether it's a single absorption line that's being broadened out, or whether there might actually be multiple absorptions. Those multiple absorptions could tell us a lot of things. Could be that there's not just sodium in there, or there's not just a single isotope of sodium. We might want to measure the isotope ratio. Uh, we might want to observe uh, the effect of the, uh, some external parameters on the, the line width, or the, uh, the center line. We might have some hyperfine splitting in the presence of a magnetic field that we want to observe. Um, and you can't do that if the resolution of your measurement is greater than the structure, the, the size of the structure you're trying to observe. Okay, so having a Doppler broadened absorption line is equivalent to uh, having a much lower resolution spectrometer that we're measuring with. I mean, whether it's your detection instrument, the spectrometer that's causing a limited resolution, or it's the the material you're observing itself that has all this uh, spectral noise, if you like. Um, in either case, it limits your ability to resolve fine structure. So, uh, so we'll see in future lectures some experimental techniques to get around this, uh, this Doppler broad alignment. One sort of brute force technique you can use is the fact that a Gaussian profile drawn in blue, falls off very rapidly uh, and goes to zero rapidly. And far away from the line kernel, way off here in the wings, there's uh, very little absorb, uh, power being absorbed, whereas a Lorentzian line width uh, falls off to zero much more slowly. And so if you have sort of a narrow Lorentzian line width underneath this large Doppler broaden line width, you look far enough away uh, from the Gaussian line, you can still see the tails of the Lorentzian. And so fitting data points here to the line, you can e extrapolate as to what the Lorentzian line profile would look like. So that's not the ideal way to make a measurement of a natural alignment, because you're relying on very low amounts of absorption very far away and trying to extrapolate back. But it is a, a possible method. Paul? And that expects like, a noise issue at that Yeah, exactly. So you need very good signal to noise in order to be able to, to do that. Jack? That's not going to freeze off uh, structure and tight No, it's not. It's not, but it's going to allow you to maybe uh, infer that the natural line width sitting underneath that broad line width is x, 10 megahertz in this case. Um, OK, so those are sort of two extremes, the Lorentzian profile and the Gaussian profile. But what you actually have is uh, this Lorentzian profile weighted by this Gaussian envelope. And if the two profiles are of comparable size, then that total, what you have is actually a mathematical convolution of the two, does not approximate uh, very well the Gaussian profile. If your Lorentzian is small enough, we can treat it as a delta function. And when you convolve a delta function with some function, you just reproduce the original function. Okay, so without going through all the mathematics of it, uh, I think the best description of a convolution that I've ever heard is 
It's like tracing, tracing an object using another object. Right? The object you're tracing with has some width. The shape of what you're tracing gets expanded. Right? So this, my hand is bigger on the board than it really is because the pen has some width. If the pen was infinitely thin, I could get a perfect reproduction of my hand. Right? If the Lorentzian were truly a delta function, as you have different delta functions with a distribution given by this Gaussian, the total net absorption would be the Gaussian. Because it's not, the total absorption, that's what's drawn here, is uh, here's a bunch of Lorentzians in dashed lines. And the relative amount of absorption, or the relative uh, population of atoms with a given resonant frequency is drawn by this Gaussian right here. And when you add up all the Lorentzians sitting under that Gaussian, you get this outer line, which is a convolution of the two. And that's called a Voigt profile. So a Voigt profile is just a convolution of a Gaussian and a Lorentzian, mathematically. And that's what's actually observed. And in the limit where the Lorentzian is much smaller than the Gaussian, the Voigt profile is the same as a, Lorentz, as a Gaussian. And so if you observe this profile and it's not truly Gaussian, you may be able to do some mathematical tricks and deconvolve it uh, to infer the line width of the Lorentzian that was convolved with the Gaussian to produce that. OK, so other broadening mechanisms. There is a, a mechanism due to collisions. There's a couple mechanisms that can change the, the line width. We have two atoms, A and B, separated by some distance R. Um, if they're attractive, generally that means that their internal energy level states are decreased when they're close together. If they're repulsive, their internal energies are increased when they're close together. And that can be represented by plotting their energy levels in an energy level diagram. But now this axis here represents the separation of the atoms. And so these atomic energy states dip down at some distance. So what does that mean about atoms A and B? Are they attractive or repulsive? They're attractive. And they would tend to uh, form a bond or at least form a spacing such that their spacing is given by this sort of minimum. Well, it may be that the uh, energy level difference is not constant throughout here. So energy, this lower energy state may change differently than this upper energy state. And so the uh, natural frequency of absorption may be different depending on the relative separation of the atoms. As a result, um, different atoms at different points in the system will have different natural frequencies. And you'll get this same type of uh, broadening the same mechanism producing broadening as we had for Doppler shifting, Doppler shifted resonant frequencies. Um, this is from Demtroder, a description of the, uh, the line profile. And it depends on the 
energy level difference and the population density. I think I'm going to skip the derivation in the interest of time and just uh, generalize or talk about the generalization of this, which is pressure broadening. So if you have atoms in a uh, close proximity, and we call that pressure, uh, we call the collisions pressure, and the inelastic collisions, which dissipate energy from the upper states, carry them away as heat, uh, will decrease the lifetime of the upper states. If you have energy in an upper state, a collision carries away that energy. That's a form of uh, decay that's not present in the isolated atoms. That's a, another way that the atom can lose its excited energy. Um, so that reduces the lifetime. So we call those quenching collisions. And they have their own rate at which they would carry away the energy. So that rate we'll call gamma for the collisions. Gamma for the radiation, this is the natural lifetime. This is in the absence of collisions, the rate at which we have decay. This is the rate with collisions, and so the total rate for energy level I, that's what that subscript I means, is the total rate. We just add them together. Okay, so the collisional rate comes from the uh, cross section, the collisional cross section. So just like we had an optical cross section, which was the effective size of an atom as seen by light, a collisional cross section is the effective size of the atom as seen by other atoms. So there tells you how probable uh, a collision will be if two atoms are, are interacting. If they, uh, are, if they come within sigma i of each other, they're essentially bumping into each other and will collide. So that cross-section times the number density times the velocity gives us a rate. So this velocity that we use is a relative velocity between the two atoms, um, like we had for Doppler broadening. Um, that's going to depend on the thermal energy, which causes them to have velocity in the first place. But because we have multiple atoms that we're dealing with, the mass that we use is not just going to be the mass of one, but the reduced mass. Okay, so we've seen the reduced mass a few times. For different atoms, A and B, they combine like such. They're the same atom, the reduced mass. Um, it's just one half. Okay, so we define the broadening pressure as the number of atoms uh, in a given state times the thermal energy of that state. Then we can define the uh, collisional decay rate in terms of that pressure. And that broadening pressure is just the normal pressure of the gas. So the decay rate is going to depend on the collisional cross-section. It's generally something you'd look up in a handbook or find from experiments. The mass and the temperature. 
So that's pressure broadening. Um, turns out you can also have pressure narrowing, particularly in the uh, far infrared. Essentially what happens is the lifetime of upper states can be long enough that an atom remains in the upper state. Uh, well, if the, if the lifetime is short, say nanoseconds, then it will probably decay before it collides with anything. And we can treat it as more or less an isolated atom during the time in which it's decaying. If it's a long enough upper state lifetime, it's going to have some collisions during the time that the upper state is, uh, is energized. And if those collisions don't, uh, don't take away that energy, then the effect is that the atom while it remains in the upper state, is moving more slowly than it otherwise would. The net velocity uh, from here to there is less than the instantaneous velocity at any point. And as a result, the in by introducing uh, atoms around this isolated atom, we damp its motion. By damping its motion, we've effectively uh, decreased its Doppler broadened width. So if the collisions don't induce an energy decay, which is the case in the far infrared and microwave, then the presence of pressure can actually decrease the line width, the, the Doppler broadened line width. So that's called pressure, na pressure narrowing. I mentioned transit time broadening. That's another example of an inhomogeneous effect. Um, so this is demonstrated here where we have our atom or molecule passing through a beam and because it is moving as it passes through this beam and this beam has finite extent the time that it has to interact is only whatever the transit time is normally you have its entire, the entire lifetime of the atom to absorb uh, the energy so The transit time tau gives rise to an effective decay rate or an effective absorption rate of 1 over tau. And so, for example, in a Gaussian laser beam where the intensity profile is a Gaussian, typically uh, most laser beams have such a profile. If you were to plot the power as a function of radius uh, in the transverse direction for a spot, so I shine a laser on the, on the board and measure its intensity profile across that pattern, you would expect there's some peak power and some Gaussian distribution to that power. As you move away from the spot center. So an atom crossing this beam has a finite interaction time with that beam. The interaction doesn't immediately turn on and then immediately turn off. It builds up and then decays. So we have to actually integrate the effect of that electric field where 
well, we integrate across the beam, so in the radius, and we express the radius, or the location of the, the atom on the beam in terms of the atom's velocity and how long it's been propagating across the beam. Okay, so that gives us a uh, integral of a Gaussian, which is another Gaussian. So a spectral line, which again is Gaussian. And we can solve for the line width of that by setting this argument um, equal to, I guess, square root of natural, uh, I guess, setting argument equal to the natural log of uh, one-half. And solving for omega minus omega naught, we get the transit, transit time limited line width. So it depends on the velocity. Greater velocity means uh, shorter interaction time. Shorter interaction time means longer line width. So the line width is directly proportional to the velocity. Inversely proportional to W. W is the width of the beam. Right, so if we have an infinitely large beam, it doesn't matter how fast our atom is moving, it will interact indefinitely. And we can write it explicitly in this form, square root of 8 natural log of 2. That comes from setting this argument equal to uh, natural log of 1 half, or e to this argument equal to 1 half. Or we can just evaluate this numerically. 8 natural log of 2 works out to 0.37. So we can have a very simple formula for a Gaussian laser beam that tells us for the Doppler limited line width, or the uh, transit time limited line width measured in hertz. We know the size of the beam, the speed of the atoms. It's uh, roughly v over omega. It'll give us that line width. And I think the final mechanism that we'll talk about is saturation broadening. So saturation broadening is a little different than the others. Uh, we've seen two mechanisms for broadening. One is to decrease the lifetime of the excited state, thereby increasing the Lorentzian line width. Another one is this inhomogeneous mechanism where different atoms have resonances at different frequencies, and the total sum leads to a broader line. In saturation broadening, what happens is the maximum amount of absorbed power gets suppressed. The lines, however, do not. You have a material that saturates, meaning at high power, all the population is being driven into an upper state, and there's no more, uh, no more material that can be pumped to the excited state. You'll cease to get absorption. So that occurs at relatively high power. So if we imagine an absorption spectrum, that would occur on the line kernel more than it would occur on the line wings.
as a result, kernel gets flattened out relative to the line wings and the full width half max then increases only because the peak decreased not because this shape actually got any wider okay so in order to derive the uh, amount by which that occurs consider a two level system most of the population initially in the lower state some rate of pumping which I'll call P on some population density n sub j for the jth state or n sub k for the kth state and when you pump you stimulate transitions from the lower state to the upper state and you also stimulate transitions from the upper state to the lower state with equal probability per atom the only difference is the relative population is different so the probability of an upward transition is p times nj or downwards transition is p times nk there's also the possibility of spontaneous decay from the upper state. And so we'll call that spontaneous decay rate R per atom. So R times NK is the total uh, decay rate. And so the natural line width is going to be governed by this R. This R is really just gamma, the natural line width. OK, so I will say that in the steady state, and in a two-level atom, the total amount of population that I pump up has to equal the total population that gets pumped down. That's the steady state. Total population that gets pumped down comes from both pumping and from natural relaxation. And I can write the population of the upper state, since it's a two-level system, it's just the total population minus the population of the lower state. And then I get an expression that only depends on the total population and the population of the lower state. And I can solve for the population of the lower state in terms of the total population, the pump rate, and the natural uh, relaxation rate. And it will be useful to write uh, the population difference delta n, where it's a positive difference if the lower state has a larger population than the upper state. That would be a normal situation. So writing nk as n minus nj, I can write the population difference in terms of the population of state j. I have an expression for the population of state j. Plug that into this, and I get the population difference equals the total population over 1 plus s, where s is what we call a saturation parameter. And it's equal to twice the pumping rate divided by the natural relaxation rate. So if there's no pumping, P equals 0, then S equals 0, population difference is N. System's entirely in the ground state because there's no pumping. When you turn on the pumping to the point where the saturation parameter equals 1, so the pump rate is half of the relaxation rate, then the population difference has decreased by a factor of 2. That's where we'd say it's saturated. That's the sort of arbitrary threshold for what becomes a saturated system. Uh, the population difference is decreased by a factor of two. Um, it's still not equally balanced. It's not fully saturated, but it's, a, it's halfway there, if you like. So the absorption is proportional to the population difference. So if we have some 
alpha naught, some absorption profile for the unsaturated condition. That's what the naught means, unsaturated. This is just the normal line profile. Absorption is a function of frequency. In the presence of strong pumping, we have to consider saturation. And because the population decreases as 1 over 1 plus s, the absorption is also going to decrease as 1 over 1 plus s. OK, so that's the mechanism that produces this uh, saturated line profile. And so just relating the pump power, or the pump rate, to the pump power, written as an intensity. Uh, an intensity is power per unit area. If we multiply it by the uh, cross-sectional area of an atom, that's what this was. This was our cross-section, those units of area. That's the total power per atom divided by h bar omega. That's the rate, the rate of absorption. Plugging that in for p there, um, plugging in for r, which you rewrite r as a sub ij. It's just another way to write the relaxation rate. That's called the Einstein A coefficient. Uh, we didn't really discuss that. Uh, it's from chapter two of your book. That is just the same as gamma. It's just you start with gamma, which came from a classical picture. This term A sub ij is, ends up being the exact same thing. It just is derived from the quantum mechanical picture. Um, and I'm using A here to follow the notation of Demschroder. OK, so plugging that all in, we calculate the saturation parameter. And we get for the saturated, this is the saturated decay rate. It's 1 over the line width. So the decay rate increases. I'm sorry, so this is the line width. It's 1 over the lifetime. The lifetime decreases. The line width increases. Um, is square root of 1 plus s naught. Um, that comes from the peak decaying, or the peak uh, value of the absorption going down by 1 plus s, and then measuring, uh, assuming that the, the, the tails do not decrease, recomputing what the Folotaf max is. Okay, so we have, we had an expression for uh, the pump rate that we can use to calculate a saturation parameter. Uh, it would be useful to, to write not the pump rate, but the intensity, since that's actually what we would typically measure. Um, so we can relate the intensity to the saturation parameter, S0. So S0 is the amount of uh, The value of S when the pump rate, well, it's the value of S at omega naught. Okay, so the intensity on resonance, cross sectional area at resonance, 
um, evaluate gives us S naught. That's called the uh, saturation parameter. And the greater the intensity, the greater that saturation will be. So we can write um, all these terms that don't include the intensity as some saturation intensity. So that S naught equals the actual intensity divided by some saturation intensity. Okay, so when I equals I sat, S naught equals 1. That's when you say the system becomes saturated. And so I sat, the saturation intensity is some measure of how much intensity it takes to make the system saturated. It's a very useful quantity to know. You just look at your laser power in the area of the spot and determine whether or not the system is saturated or not, whether or not saturation broadening is going to be uh, significant. Okay, so summarize. We have from our classical electron oscillator model a description of the line profile for an atom uh, where the line width measured in hertz, so now I'm expressing everything in this table in terms of hertz, so delta nu or delta f if you like, is related to the uh, lifetime of the damped harmonic oscillator tau by 1 over 2 pi tau. However, we rarely actually have a situation where the natural lifetime is what will be observed in an experiment. There's usually environmental influences that cause the observed lifetime to increase. One of the most common uh, sources of that is Doppler broadening. Doppler broadening is due to the uh, Maxwell-Boltzmann distribution of velocities of the atoms at a finite temperature. Because atoms at different velocities produce uh, or have resonant frequencies that are Doppler shifted by different amounts, you get a line profile that also has a Gaussian distribution to it with a line width given here. Depends, one of the primary dependencies is on the mass of the atoms. It also depends on the temperature, but as I mentioned, it's usually impractical to cool a system that's Doppler broadened to a point where that's not an issue. There's also pressure broadening, which is proportional to the pressure of the material. Um, because it comes from the interaction of different molecules, we use the reduced mass in our formula here. And it also has a temperature dependence. Although in this case, the temperature dependence is the opposite form. If we have interaction with a laser beam, particularly a small laser beam, and we have moving material, we would expect that material uh, may have its interaction time limited not by its natural decay rate, but rather by the time in which it overlaps with the laser beam. And that gives rise to this, uh, this value for the transit time limited line width. This 8 natural log 2 squared over 2 pi, that evaluates to 0.37. So you have that in the notes. If your laser beam is not Gaussian, then you don't end up with the same numerical result. 
this, this particular arrangement of, of constants comes from integrating a Gaussian beam. You can follow the derivation using a flat top beam if you have a flat top beam or any other form to get slightly different values for transit time broadening with different, uh, with different mechanisms. And then there's a saturation broadening. Saturation broadening comes from um, suppressing the amount of absorption at regions of high intensity. Okay, where there's lots of absorption, the system becomes saturated and unable to absorb, continue to absorb more. As a result, the amount of absorption on the, uh, as you turn on the power, the amount of absorbed power in the line kernel saturates and maxes out while the line wings continue to raise. And therefore, the full at path max broadens. Okay, and um, in terms of a saturation parameter, I sat, that line width increased by square root of 1 plus I over I sat. Writing that saturation parameter in, in terms of the absorption cross section, the natural lifetime, and the resonant frequencies uh, gives us this form right here. And so some of these things we look up, the absorption cross section. Other are things you may measure, like the temperature. Um, and then you can compute the line widths. And typically, uh, in order to determine for a given experiment or a given sample what its line width will be, you actually have to compute the amount of broadening from all these different mechanisms. And then the one that's the largest is the one that's going to dominate. Okay, if there's multiple ones that have comparable uh, line widths, you may get some convolution of the two. But in general, you find the one that produces the largest line width and assume that's the line width that you would observe. You can guide your calculations. Uh, rather than calculating one, two, three, four, five different line widths, if you have a gas at finite temperature, uh, you'd expect Doppler broadening to be significant. Um, if you have a gas, you should also consider pressure broadening. You wouldn't need to consider transit time broadening unless you have small spot and moving material. Um, for power broadening, that would generally be an issue when you have a concentrated beam spot or a high power laser. Those are things you might look for um, that would cause this to be significant. Any questions? Okay, so you have homework coming up on this. Um, pretty much this table will get you through most of the homework. Um, and then we'll talk about some of the experimental techniques to get around some of these broadened line widths next time. Um, we also have, I posted the lecture notes for next time, chapter six, I believe it is. And I also posted a uh, journal article that I'd like you to read. So uh, you can get that online. Homework is due in 